but they kind of get overshadowed by the big sexy animals. That's what I call them, the big sexy ones. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hello. Welcome back to the podcast that's all the fun of a zoo without seeing any animals, the Rasafari Podcast. As always, I'm really excited to have you back here with me. I'm stoked to tell you the story behind today's episode, but first, let's take care of some housekeeping. Make sure you're following along at Rasafari on Instagram and Facebook. You can check out rossafari.com if you want to learn a little bit more about me and my goals with this project. As always, don't forget to leave a five-star rating for the podcast, and if you could take 20 seconds to write a review, it would really mean a lot to me, and go a long way to helping other people find the show. There is some merch available at rossafari.redbubble.com. Finally, don't forget that I'm using Patreon to try to fund what I'm doing here. You can go to www.patreon.com slash rossafari to become a monthly supporter. There are a ton of great perks, including bonus content from some episodes, including this one. If you want to learn more about the red panda and the aviary at the zoo I'm bringing to you today, or if you want to hear about how some red foxes may not actually be red, that info is available exclusively to my monthly subscribers. Patrons will go a long way to helping this podcast continue to exist and to continue to grow. Okay, today I'm taking you to Mill Mountain Zoo, a small ZAA-accredited zoo that sits at the top of a mountain in Roanoke, Virginia. I have to tell you the story of how I got this interview. A few months ago, I was talking to a friend who mentioned Nova, the red panda at the zoo, and I found myself surprised to learn there was a zoo in Roanoke with a red panda that I didn't know existed, since I have hung out and gigged in that town multiple times. I immediately looked them up and decided I wanted to go visit. I also decided to reach out to see if I could make an interview happen. I contacted Robin Lentz, the co-director of the zoo, and we played a little bit of phone tag without ever connecting, but I had a good feeling. So I hopped in my car and headed to Roanoke, a a five-and-a-half-hour drive. When I woke up, the entire mountain was covered in thick fog, it was raining, and I still didn't have an interview scheduled. So I grabbed a quick coffee and headed up the side of a mountain that was covered in fog. I strapped on my little mini recorder and headed into the zoo. Once I got there, I went to the gift shop and asked the attendant to radio for Robin. Yep, that's right. I just asked the person working at the gift shop to radio for the co-director of the zoo in the hopes of securing an on-the-spot interview. (laughs) Woo, not gonna lie, sometimes I can't believe myself. In this case, it worked out super well. Robin was incredibly gracious and took me on a tour of the entire zoo. After that, we sat down in her office and did a quick follow-up interview, touching on the differences in the AZA and ZAA accreditation process, what a co-director does at a zoo, and some other fun stuff. I'm going to start with the interview we did after the walkthrough, and then take you out into the zoo to introduce you to some of the incredible animals and conservation efforts being done there. 
Enjoy my unexpected interview with Robin Lentz of Mill Mountain Zoo. Okay, so we're kind of doing this in reverse since we already did the, the zoo walkthrough. Right. Normally I start with an interview. But um, so tell me who you are, where we are, and what you do here. Okay. Um, my name is Robin Lentz, and I am the co-director over animal programs and facilities at the Mill Mountain Zoo in Roanoke, Virginia. Very cool. And um, tell me a little bit about the co-director situation there. Normally, I know there's, in my experience, just been a director of the zoo. I assume that co means two? That's correct. Yep. Um, I have um, a co-director who covers finances and guest services, and we work together um, covering a lot of the same details that an, both an executive director would and a assistant director or a department head would. We moved to that model, the co-director model, gosh, five, five years or so ago, um, mainly because I think it was difficult to retain an executive director um, here for whatever reason. Um, but also there were a number of pieces that um, needed more intensive oversight. And we felt like by kind of dividing and conquering, uh, we might be able to get some of those things accomplished more successfully than we've been able to. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, and so that helps you focus mostly on the animal stuff then? Um, it does. I mean, both of us sort of, you know, we don't necessarily overlap, but we're, we have awareness of everything that's going sure. on in the facility. Um, but yes, my primary focus is um, on facility-based issues or uh, animal collection issues. That's awesome. That's very cool. Tell me, what is your background? Um, my background is pretty generic, but I've been in this uh, industry for just about 25 years. Um, I worked as a, a keeper for a number of those years and then sort of moved up to supervisor and started at this zoo as a curator. Okay. Um, and through my time here have held a variety <laughs> <laughs> of positions, but mainly um, focusing predominantly on the oversight of the animal right. collection. Yeah. Very cool. And what, um, for people that are listening that don't know this, what does a curator do at a zoo? I know a lot of us think of museums when we hear that word. Um, so, so what is a zoo curator going to do? So it's, it's very similar. You know, we view, um, the animals at our facility. They're part of a collection of animals. Um, larger zoos will have curators broken down by, you know, birds or small mammals, large mammals, elephants, or a number of ways you can break them out. But functionally, that's just to oversee that collection of animals and to, uh, you know, ensure the health of the animals, to uh, uh, maintain the programs that support the animals and the people that are taking care of those animals as well as um, help to make decisions on how to curate the collection. So making sure that you have animals that are appropriate to your collection or moving them into or out of your collection as needed for breeding recommendations or facility reasons, whatever it might be. So Very cool. All right. 
So, um, Mill Mountain Zoo is a member of the ZAA, and my listeners are are well aware of the AZA. Um, What is the ZAA, and kind of what's what's the difference? I know it is a a very well-respected accreditation body, um, and some bigger zoos, including the Pittsburgh Zoo, are ZAA facilities. Um, So I know that it's it's a it's a positive thing, and it's it's good. I'm just curious if you could talk to uh, me about that a little bit. Um, so we are uh, relatively newcomers to the ZAA. Uh, historically, we had been accredited by AZA. Um, we were not granted accreditation on our last cycle uh, for a number of reasons, none of them to do with animal care or welfare, but certainly, you know, some concerns about um, just what our sort of succession plan was, what our backup strategy might be. And now there's COVID. Yeah, so, you yep, know, yep, yep. It's certainly valid um, questions and things to be concerned about for any facility. Um, we took a kind of a pull back. We didn't want to pursue um, AZA again, knowing that we still weren't going to be able to meet some of those important benchmarks that they set. Right. With regard to um, some of the fiscal um, preparations that a facility needs. Um, So we pulled back. We began um, talking to other ZAA members and learning more about that organization from a not as an, an other, but as a valid accrediting body and how do how would they fit? How would we fit with them? And it, it felt like it would be um, a pretty good match for us because one of the, I think, primary differences, at least through this initial accreditation that I went through with ZAA, was that the, the focus really was on the um, animal care side of right. the facility and the safety of the facility. Um, certainly, conservation and education were pieces of that but the one aspect that they really didn't uh feel they needed to dig into was how are we going to maintain it financially and what is our relationship with the city for example which we are not city funded or run Uh, we're a private not-for-profit we just happen to lease property from the city And that's also important, you know, having those municipal relationships. But for us, it's it's not one that we've ever had Mm -hmm. with the city. They're supporters, definitely, but they don't support us. Right, right. um, If that makes sense. So I think for us, the fact that ZAA was focused predominantly on our strength, which is really animal care and providing good welfare, um, and less on the piece that we knew we weren't going to be able to, to match up to. We don't have an endowment. Right. We're not going to, the city's not going to take us over as a managing uh, body. So we just felt like it would be a good fit. And so far it has been. Um, I do feel like, you know, because they're smaller, um, it is, there's a lot of member inclusion, mm-hmm. which is really nice. Um, but it's, there are facilities that are also for profit, which mm-hmm. is a, a different perspective for me. I've the places that I've worked have always been AZA accredited, right? 
Right. So it's been interesting to learn about um, other facilities that, um, you know, work for profit or just how they're structured differently or where they put their efforts. Sure. But, no, makes sense. Very cool. Um, and speaking of, of leasing your area here, this zoo is a mountain. Like, we are on the side of a mountain. I drove up a gorgeous fall mountain. I wish I could see the views we talked about. Um, but I have been to the Roanoke Star before, so I, I've gotten some view of that. Sure. Um, but I'm, I'm curious what advantages or challenges being literally built on the side of a mountain bring to the zoo. Um, I think the the first and foremost is that, yes, we're on the top. It only slopes away from us from our main footprint. Right. And so when you think about zoos and what they might be able to bring in, you know, we have we have some pretty significant slope. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, altering this landscape too much isn't, isn't part of our agreement with... Um, the Fishburns, who originally were the owners of this property, and it's not our agreement with the environment that we want to completely distort or destroy the top of this right, mountain of course, to yeah. put in exhibits that people might traditionally find at a zoo. Um, so it is challenging in that we have to be creative in what we think about bringing to the zoo. Um, it may not seem like a huge... A change in altitude, but you know we can have a variation of five to ten degrees, upwards of ten degrees sometimes between the valley and the top of the mountain. Right. The weather up here can certainly be different. We can have inches of snow where they're just getting a little bit. Um, yeah, I will say when I got coffee in Roanoke this morning, no fog, none. <laughs> then I got up here and you can't see three feet in front of you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So there's that, the potential for downed trees, um, you know, they will close the road, um, especially the parkway, which is uh, some, how some of our staff use to come into the zoo. Um, so, yeah, it's just life on a mountain, anybody's mountain. Uh, it can be, can be challenging. Our footprint is kind of restricted by the landscape, and in some ways, that's great because mm -hmm. we do have a beautiful forest around us um, that is recreated by the community, um, but also it does limit what we're what we're able to do. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So, um, tell me anything else that you'd like me to know about the zoo or the the people or animals here. You know, I do think that this zoo is special and unique. Um, I personally love small zoos. I love nature centers. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just always have. I'm one of those weirdos who actually likes the, um, like, dioramas. <laughs> <laughs> You're the person they make them for. I've always wondered who it was. Okay. I mean, I just, I, I just find those things so um, charming and a way to tell a story that is, is some kind of hard to do but beyond that I do, I do like the small intimate environment you mm -hmm. know everybody up here that's working here we're part of a team and you know as you commented about me washing down a bench I mean we all will jump in and do any job that we're asked to do because right. because we are a small team that is you know working for the same end goal um 
I think that we have a great little zoo. I think we have definite room for improvement. You know, we've we've kind of had highs and lows, at least through the near decade that I've been here, ups and downs. And um, I feel like at least over the past few years, we've started to really gain traction that's going to get us up over the top. And then, you know, we're just going to roll from there. I feel like as we are able to bring on new and novel exhibits, even though um, some folks may say black bear, who cares? I can see one in my backyard <laughs> kind of thing. A lot of people can't. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, a lot of bear exhibits can't. are amazing. <laughs> I remember starting to see bears at zoos. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. So, you know, we're excited for, for what that's going to bring to our ability to um, work towards just local conservation. That's really the one thing that I failed to show you that I'll definitely have to point out on the way out. Yeah. Our, our new piglets. Oh, goodness. Okay. Yeah. Yes, so, I want to go see the piggies. <laughs> yeah. And they're American guinea hog okay. piglets. And, and, and again, that's part of that storytelling about the Appalachian Mountains, the Blue Ridge Mountains. And we want people to be connected not only to the wild landscape, but also to understand that, you know, we from a heritage breed point of view, we have a connection to these animals, too, and, and why they're a value for conservation or that even... There's a conservation organization dedicated yeah, I did not to know that. livestock breeds. That's very and cool. I did not know that at all. What organization is that? The American Livestock Breeds Conservancy. That would make sense. <laughs> very cool. <laughs> but yeah, they're classified, you know, critically endangered, endangered, threatened, okay. vulnerable wow. um, on the same sort of scale. So some species uh, or breeds rather are down to a hundred wow. individuals left. Um, and these are animals that were important as founder genetics for what went on to become our major meat-producing breeds right. that we use now commercially. But if we lose these founder genetics and something train wrecks with these big hybrids, mm -hmm. um, we'll have lost all that information that was used to build them. So I, it's fascinating to me. I'm personally a vegetarian, but I find it fast fascinating mm -hmm. that, you know, if we lose these genetics, we lose breeds that are important to you if right, you eat right. hamburgers mm -hmm. or pork chops. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's the same sort of thinking, you know. They're, people stopped caring about them because they didn't have a use. Right. That's and, fascinating. Yeah. I, I did not know any of that that's very cool i love how i think i've done about 30 some interviews now for this podcast and i've learned something in every one <laughs> despite the fact that i'm very well versed in in this stuff sure. and, and my girlfriend is a fourth year vet student who is on her way to being a zoo vet and man i'm learning stuff left and right that's so, there's so much to the world of conservation and um so many animals that need our help and i just i find it fascinating so, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I have a tradition. Okay. And this one might take a second. Might have to go back a little bit more to the keeper days here. But I end every episode with what I call the Rasafari poop story. Yeah, you know, um, <clears throat> 25 years is a long time to be around poop. <laughs> <laughs> Flamingos are coming to mind because we used to do um, uh, occasional 
catch up several flamingo flock at Jacksonville and would have to transport them in a little pickup truck. And so everybody is holding their flamingo, but they're all pointing, you know, we're all pointing at each other. So I feel like, you know, when it comes to poop and I, in my career, I work mostly with birds. Okay. And I feel fairly confident that I was pooped on by flamingos more than anything else because of that process. Right, not, right. Not for any other reason, but because we had them all aimed at each other. <laughs> so it was only one place that it could go uh, when it happened. So, yes, um, I think flamingo transport. Um, but, yeah, it, right. to me, in my mind, it's basically it's paintball. Yes. Only. Yeah, no, it's, not, it's, of course, it's so much worse than paintball. <laughs> So much worse. Fair, um, fair. Yeah, yeah. That's probably that's probably the big one. Nice. I mean, I'm sure there are others. <laughs> I um, not remember. That's amazing. Is there anything else you wanted uh, to say before I no, go? No, I mean, cool. thank you for stopping by. Yeah, and thank you for doing time this. With me and let me talk about our little zoo. This is awesome. I'm excited uh, to bring this to everyone. I really am. All right, now we're going to head on into the zoo where you're going to hear some cool stories about uh, some of the different animals there, some of the conservation efforts that they're taking part in, and just what makes Mill Mountain Zoo so special. As I mentioned in the intro, it was raining and foggy that day, and you'll definitely be able to hear some of the rain during our discussions, but it's not really an audio problem at all. We're going to start off by talking about the Palace's cats. Probably about 20 or so years ago, the vision for the zoo was to make it resemble um, our sister city, Wanshu, Korea. So to develop a temperate Asian collection or animals that would be found in that region. So that's when we um, entered the Snow Leopard program and the Red Panda program. Um, Palace Cats came on a little bit uh, later. Uh, so the collection has always remained kind of temperate Asia, a little tropical, subtropical, and then North American uh, for the most part. And um, it works well because our developed property is only about five acres. Okay. So we don't have the space for big lion enclosures or giraffe enclosures <laughs> or the typical zoo animal enclosures. So what we're able to do in this small space on top of a mountain, which there aren't very many zoos sitting right on top of a mountain, um, is showcase some of these smaller species that are present at other zoos, certainly present at larger zoos, but they kind of get overshadowed by, by the big uh, sexy animals. That's what I call them, the big sexy ones. <laughs> I love that. So, this is our palace cat. Yeah, um, tell me about the, the palace cat. And right now what we have in here, we have two kittens from a litter that was born here in 2017. Um, right now it looks like it's the female kitten. They aren't together because they are sexually mature. Okay. Um, so we rotate them on and off. But, you know, that was... That was a huge accomplishment for us. We had to hand rear those kittens um, because mother developed an infection and she wasn't able to nurse them. Um, but they were born naturally, so we didn't have to step in with artificial insemination, which is sometimes the case with palace cats because, um, you know, they just have a particular breeding cycle and requirements for that. 
And also, because we're a smaller zoo, we were able to cordon off a huge section around this exhibit so that people couldn't get close and upset mom or dad during that critical time when they, they awesome. need to be focusing on reproduction. And, you know, our guests, certainly, and our members fully supported what we were doing because they knew the end result was going to be um, well worth it. That's very cool. And she yeah. is a beauty. What's, yeah. uh, what's her name? Uh, so we have Norbu is the female, and then we have Batbayar is the male. Those are some great names. Yeah, we had a naming <laughs> contest, and uh, th those were selected actually by the previous curator slash director. He put those in, and uh, they, they won, which, yeah, <laughs> he knew what he was doing. <laughs> he knew what he was doing. Very cool. Yeah. So, um, and this is a, a species that we like to work with. They're excellent size for our facility. And, uh, you know, we like to do storytelling about them and their habitat. It pairs well with the snow leopard, which is our largest cat species here. Next up, it's the red wolves, which are part of an incredible conservation effort. So this area right here is, uh, houses what <gasps> I'm most proud of for this zoo. Um, we have worked with the Red Wolf um, Recovery Program on the human care side for, I think, going on three decades now. And just uh, earlier this year in January, I think it was January, we received this family group from the Durham Museum of Life and Science. And I love to work with this species. I love to talk about their conservation. Um, I love to talk about the struggles they faced. Sorry. No worries. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I'm uh, yeah. thrilled to have these eight wolves. We actually have nine red wolves. We do have a very geriatric red wolf, um, also. That's amazing. This is amazing. There are so many and they are so gorgeous. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about their story. Like, uh, you know, you said you love talking about it. So, well, so tell my people about, uh, the red wolf. Well, um, so the red wolf is one, it's the only wolf species that's only found in the United States. So it's, and it's native to the Southeast Eastern United States. Um, it was officially declared extinct in the wild when there were only about 44 individuals left in Louisiana and Texas, that area in the late 70s. They removed those wolves, sent them to Point Defiance Zoo, um, where they began to work cooperatively with uh, Fish and Wildlife Service to build the population back up as part of a reintroduction program for the species. Nice. Um, that ultimately did happen at Alligator River Wildlife Refuge and off the coast of North Carolina, or on the coast of North Carolina there. And, um, the program was really kind of rolling along up until about five years or so, um, when there started to be more, uh, human conflict and not because the wolves were conflicting with the humans, but the humans were causing Shocker. problems for the <laughs> For the wolves, and since then the program has been in review, mm -hmm. and um, right now what facilities like Mill Mountain Zoo are doing are acting as um, holding uh, holding facilities for this species as the government uh, begins to look at how do 
we keep this reintroduction program going? Do we need new reintroduction sites? Do we send them back to Alligator River? Still a lot of questions that are getting hashed out, but I think we're getting close. But, you know, the, these eight wolves, they're only about 20 wild living red wolves. Mm. All the other wolves are found under human care in facilities like Mill Mountain Zoo. Um, and, yeah, we're, we're just hopeful that we can talk to enough people, get people excited about their story to return this wolf to the wild. If we lose them completely at Alligator River, um, that will be... The second time the species has gone wild, or gone extinct in the wild. Right. Twice. I don't know any other species. I can't <laughs> think of another insane. species yeah, that that's... has gone extinct twice in the wild. Oh. So, you know, they just deserve all our, our effort and attention. Because, again, this is America's wolf. Right. This is the American red wolf. Mm. They're so gorgeous. I'm so grateful that you brought me back here. This is so cool. Oh, man. Look at them. They might start howling because their neighbor, the fire truck, is now calling to them. <laughs> when we first got them, um, true story, we, we've had red wolves up here, as many as four at any given time. And they certainly do howl. But when we got these guys up here, we would get phone calls from people asking us to turn off the loudspeaker oh, no. that was playing the red wolf howls. <laughs> Um, people, there's a hiking trail behind this, um, area mm -hmm. and people walk their dogs and things would call and ask us, could you turn off the loudspeaker? You're terrifying my dog when we go for our hikes <laughs> <laughs> because nobody at that point really knew right. how many wolves we had and what that would sound like on top of this mountain. It's, it's pretty incredible. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now we'll head on into the Herp house. I see a box turtle. <laughs> so this is our very small um, reptile house. It is currently closed to the public just because the way the traffic would flow. Right. It's a pretty closed off space. Um, again, we don't have anything too exotic or unusual in here. Um, a number of these animals were either former pets or, um, you know, were acquired some time ago. But these Burmese pythons is really why we came in here, because I wanted to talk about the oldest one that we have. Um, his name is Hoover. He's 33 years old. Wow. 33 years old. <laughs> We're estimating. He could be older than right, that. Right, right. Um, and honestly, that's one of the best things that I think this zoo does and probably has done for a while is we're able, I think because of the laid back atmosphere, you know, we don't have millions of people coming through. Um, these animals, I think just have remarkable lifespans probably because of the environment that we create for people up here. And because we're not just hustle and bustle every single day right. with thousands of people. So, I mean, yes, Hoover's 33. We have, tufted deer that's I think he's almost 20, 21 our zebu is 23 wow they, yeah we just, animals get up on this mountain and then they stick around for <laughs> which makes us very good at geriatric animals. right, right, that's awesome 
It turns out that there's also a pretty famous eagle who lives at Mill Mountain Zoo with uh, another eagle companion. So here's that tale. Um, this section, the reason we walked out here yeah. is, um, one, we um, brought in bald eagles to our uh, collection. Oh, that's a bald eagle flying. That's pretty cool. two years ago, um, and this was a conversion. We did have... Um, Eurasian vultures here. So one of the things that the zoo wanted to start doing was really start showcasing um, animals native to the Appalachians and to the southeastern United States. We feel like our location is perfect for that kind of storytelling, um, but also just as collectively as an organization, we think it's really important to, sh to share about these animals that people have ideas about but may not know much about you know so we just want to kind of get ahead of any additional conservation story these kinds of animals might need you know by by bringing them in and being able to share them with people very cool and I, this eagle <clears throat> outside is um elsie and elsie is an eagle that had quite a following okay um, she and her mate einstein on a webcam for a number of years. She came out of Missouri, um, had a webcam Facebook page. People, oh, wow. people know Elsie. Right, right, right. And um, when she was found injured in the wild, um, they were really hopeful that she'd be able to go back and right. re-nest with um, Einstein. And unfortunately, after I think just over a year of rehabilitation efforts she just wasn't able to sustain flight so she wasn't able to be released and i understand that einstein has since taken another mate i forget her name um but anyway so you know some of these animals come with their own stories even though they were wild living right right before we ever ever uh met them and last but not least here is a little story about the asian small clawed otters Oh, small clawed otters. Yeah. Hey, guys. Oh. So when I started, we had four sisters. Um, and as sisters are wont to do, their relationship eventually broke down. So we have one remaining sister and then um, a, a male otter that we got several years ago from Newport Aquarium. Nice. Named Pork Chop. <laughs> That's a good and, name. And, um, yeah, they are... They are they were fast friends. Again, just meant to be companion animals. That's the other thing about us being small. We have to be very selective. Mm -hmm. If we're going to participate in a breeding program, we have to make sure that we can hold the offspring right. for up to two years, sometimes longer, and you know hold them correctly. And certainly otters can have large litters. We don't have the space for a large litter of otters. So cute. Just face right up at the window. Yeah. Um, so do you have them on birth control then? Or? Right, yeah. Okay, because makes the, sense. The female's implanted. Gotcha. Yeah, because I was going to say, I uh, saw some breeding behavior when I got here today, or at least oh, an well, attempt at yes. it. So yeah, yeah, I figured, I figured that. So that's they, just do a, a traditional like implant type thing? Mm -hmm. That's so cool. Yeah, and they have a very affectionate <laughs> relationship in spite of <laughs> Right. In spite of that reproductive barrier, he doesn't know it's in place, I guess. Sure, yeah. She's receptive to his advances, but yeah, <laughs> we, we keep a close eye on it. <laughs> <laughs> 
And there you have it. I am incredibly grateful to Robin Lentz to uh, taking the time out of her day to show me all around the zoo, especially when it was not planned. (laughs) Sorry about that, Robin. You guys can check out Mill Mountain Zoo on Instagram or Facebook at Mill Mountain Zoo or online at www.mmzoo.org. Also, don't forget, if you sign up for Patreon, you can get extra content from this episode and hear about other amazing animals at the zoo, including Nova the Red Panda. Alrighty, here are those sexy, sexy credits. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.